Good morning. If we can find our seats. We'll get started this morning. As you're finding your seats, if you can turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. We'll get you time to, to get there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. We're going to cover uh, a bigger chunk of Scripture this morning. So we're not going to go through 1 John uh, verse, verse by verse in the sense of verse one Sunday, verse the next Sunday. We'll cover, cover a little bit more this morning. Although I've had a couple of you encourage me not to do that. So um, verse 3, let's start there. And by this we know we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have heard from the beginning. The, com- the old commandment is a word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passed away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the darkness and hates his brother, is st- or whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Dear Only Father, Lord God, I know this passage this morning is a, is a challenging passage, Lord, as we examine our hearts this morning, Lord. I pray for for two things, Lord. One, for those that are truly saved, Lord, here this morning, that we find confidence, not in ourselves, Lord, not in something we have done, Lord, but the work that you're doing in our lives, Lord, the fruit that you are producing in our lives, Lord, and the, the salvation that you have given us, Lord. We find our confidence in your Son and what he's done for us, Lord. At the same time, Lord, this challenging portion of Scripture I know is to challenge those that aren't truly saved, Lord. And so, if there's someone in this room that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray that they put their faith in you this morning, that they examine their hearts, that you reveal to them that they're not in right standing with you, they're not in fellowship with you, Lord, and that they repent and turn to you, Lord, for salvation. Be with us this morning, in your son's name, amen. As a pastor, and I'm sure you guys are probably figuring this out as I'm up here more, um, I'm not a great storyteller. Um, I think the High schoolers figured this out a long time ago. 
uh, it's not that I'm a bad storyteller. It's just I never can think of, of stories that are illustrations for the passages that I'm going over. And, and I know, especially with the internet and past churches that you've come from, there's those pastors out there that have good illustrations. There's pastors that just can think of stories like that. Um, I grow, growing up went to Bear Valley Church's youth group, and Kevin Bosler was our uh, youth pastor there. And that guy could think of stories like left and right every single sermon. He had some kind of good illustration from his life. I just have a hard time thinking of stories. Thankfully, the Bible is full of stories. Majority of Scripture is historical narrative, which means they're real-life, true stories that, that really happen, and they make great illustrations for sermons. So if you would, keep your finger on 1 John chapter 2, and turn with me. We're going to be right back in 1 John soon here. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. And this is, a, again, a story, a historical narrative, the true story that happened with Jesus. And, and we actually covered this in Luke just recently. It's, it's the Passion Week. We spent a ton of time in the Passion, Passion Week. It's Tuesday, in the Passion Week, and there's tension growing, right, between Jesus and the religious leaders, right? The religious leaders are trying to trip him up. They're trying to make him look bad, make him look foolish. They're trying to, to dishonor Jesus. It's an honor-shame culture, and Jesus' honor is going through the roof, and because of that, the religious leader's honor is um, getting dishonored. And so they're trying to reverse that by tripping up Jesus. And look at verse 15. It says this, the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Heredians. Right? Again, they're trying to trap Jesus. These are the Pharisees and the Heredians. They're teaming up. And that's interesting because these two groups hated each other. I don't want to get in, in, in the backstory too much of why they hated each other, but they hated each other. What's interesting about that is their hatred towards Jesus was so much more than their hatred towards each other that it transcended, transcended their hatred for each other. So they teamed up together to attack Jesus and try to trap him in his words. Just a side note, and we're going to come back to this concept. If there is a common goal or conviction or desire, those things, if they're, they're deep enough, can transcend differences. Right? A common desire can bring people together, even if that common desire is hatred. And we see that happening here. Look at verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question. This is another group. Again, another group doesn't get along with the other groups, but they're all getting along in their attack against Jesus. Skip down to verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he, this is Jesus, that he had silenced the Sadducees. In other words, because of their interaction, you can read what happened there. Uh, uh, Jesus' wisdom silenced the Sadducees. They couldn't, they couldn't speak against Jesus. His, his answers were just too perfect. They, this is the Pharisees, gathered together in verse 35, and one of them a lawyer. Now, that word lawyer means he's a, this, this man's an expert in the law. You have to understand, in this day and age, in this time in, in Israel, the law was the Old Testament. So he was an expert in the Old Testament, meaning he probably had the whole Old Testament memorized, and he knew it better than anyone. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. He said, teacher, he's talking to Jesus, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, 
right? This is Jesus' answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Right? If you're familiar with this portion of Scripture, that's, that's a perfect answer, right? Perfect answer. He quotes Deuteronomy 6. It's perfect because this one commandment covers all the other commandments. In other words, if you love God perfectly, you're going to keep all of his other commandments. So this one commandment covers everything. Perfect answer. Look at verse 39. And a second one is like it. This is Jesus continuing to answer. A second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Right? Perfect answer. It silences his opponents. I mean, skip again to verse 46. This is what it says. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This amazing interaction. And it, as I was reading this and thinking about this, can you imagine being there? Just witnessing this, right? Not saying anything, not being involved, but just being one of the, the audiences, listening to, to Jesus talking to these, these Pharisees, Sadducees. I mean, these are the men that were the smartest men of the culture, right? These were the PhDs of the day that knew the Old Testament better than anyone, and Jesus with his wisdom just destroying their arguments. Can you imagine? So much so, verse 46 says that no one was able to answer him a word. From that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Do you think about that? The reason I ask that is because John witnessed this interaction. He was there. He witnessed this. And I believe this interaction had a huge impact on John's writing, especially in 1 John. In other words, if you look at 1 John, you see the influence of Jesus' teaching, especially this portion of Scripture throughout all of 1 John. So today, my, my three points are, as we go through this passage, and you can turn back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. My three points are this. The greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, and the application of those, these commandments. The greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, and the application of these commandments. So let's start with the first point, the greatest commandment. 1 John 2, verse 3 says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him. That word that's used there, it's obviously John's repeating itself on purpose. Know, right? Or knowledge in Greek, it's gnosko. Gnosko, right? It's a very common word in the New Testament. It's used 121 times. But by far, it's used more by John than any other New Testament author. In the Gospel of John, Gnosko, the word knowledge is used 56 times. That's like one-fourth of the times it's used in the New Testament. And 1 John alone, right, five chapters, this small epistle, it's used 25 times. Let me just compare that to, to the book of Acts, which we know is a, a very lengthy book. The book of Acts has this word only 16 times compared to these five chapters where John uses it 25 times. Two times in this verse, four times in this passage, the next four verses. Why does John use this word so much? Well, remember, he's confronting heretical teaching. He's confronting heretical teaching. He's confronting Gnosticism. And that word Gnostics, right, heretical teachers, comes from the word gnosko. It comes from the word knowledge in Greek. These Gnostics believed that salvation came from gaining a secret knowledge, right? A secret knowledge. 
which created haves and have-nots. We talked about this. Those that had this secret knowledge, and they, they had contempt and treated those that didn't have the secret knowledge badly. The haves treated the have-nots with contempt. And because of this, John feared that the church, true believing Christians within the church, were questioning their salvation because they didn't have this secret knowledge. They, they may be questioning, are we missing out? Like, what is the secret knowledge that these teachers have? It's why John wrote this letter. First John 5.13 says this, I write these sayings. This is why I write these sayings. I write these sayings to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know, gnosko, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you can have confidence that you are saved, that you may know you are saved. How does a person know that they're saved? Well, look at verse 3. And by this, we know, he's talking about intellectually here, that we know cognitively, that we know that we have come to know him. That second know is relationally, that we may know knowledge-wise that we have come to a relationship with God, in other words. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And before we go any further, I just want to make this really clear, and we're going to come back to this. Keeping God's commandments does not save you. It does not save you. It's evidence of salvation. It's evidence of salvation. Only, only faith in Christ saves you. But evidence of salvation is keeping God's commandments. One theologian put it this way, and I love his wording in here, so just listen to this. It says, Keeping God's commandments is not the condition for knowing God. In other words, not the condition for salvation, but rather the characteristic of knowing God. It's the characteristic of knowing God. Why is it the characteristic? Because if you truly have a love for God, you're going to strive to keep his commandments. Listen to what Jesus said in the Gospel of John. Gospel of John 14, 15 says this, If you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John fourteen twenty one. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. It's another way of saying commandments. John fifteen ten. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There's this connection throughout Scripture, in other words, of loving God and keeping his commandments. That's why Jesus answers the Pharisees in such a perfect way. Right? His answer was perfect in Matthew 22, verse 36, when he says, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? When they asked Jesus that, and he, and, and he said to them, he answers, You shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. If you love God perfectly, you're going to keep his commandments. If you love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, you're going to keep his commandments. Therefore, this one commandment, love the Lord, covers everything. So John is saying, how does a person know he's saved? Well, part of salvation is being born again. That's why we're called born-again believers, right? 
Being born again means that we were born spiritually dead. The first birth, our physical birth, we were born spiritually dead. The second birth, being born again, means that our spiritual deadness is gone and we have life. It means that we are a new man. It means that we have new desires and new loves. And those that are truly born again have a desire for God. They have a love for God. And if you have a love for God, you will strive to keep his commandments. So look at verse 4. It says this. Whoever says, I know him, right? In other words, have fellowship with him, have a relationship with, with him, have a love for him. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Right? He doesn't get more straightforward than that. John doesn't beat around the bush. He just says it straightforward how it is. But remember where John started. Right? We're not talking about perfection. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 10, he even says, if you say you're sinless, in other words, if you say you're perfect, you're a liar. It's not perfection, but anyone that doesn't have a desire to keep God's commandments, that person doesn't truly love God, isn't truly saved. Look at verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, right, this is the opposite, and keeps his word. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now this is a really interesting verse, and it's hard to translate into English. So I want to break it down a little bit. Look at verse 5 again. But whoever keeps his word, right, this, this means continuous striving. It's not perfection. It's not a perfect keeping his word. It really could be translated, whoever keeps on keeping, right? Whoever strives to keep his word, and his word is synonymous with, with his commandments. So whoever strives to, to keep God's commandments, right? in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now this is a very interesting um, sentence in the Greek. The love for God is an is a objective genitive, which probably means nothing to you, but, but it means it could be translated love for God. Instead of love of God, love for God. In other words, those that keep God's commandments, truly, they have a love for God. Love for God. And actually, out of all the translations, I think the NIV gets it the best. And so this is what the NIV says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Now that just sounds weird in English, and the NIV is trying to make things sound more, I can't even, I'm making no sense right now. Um, make things make sense in English, but, the, but this word's so hard to translate in English, the sentence, the, the awkwardness here actually captures what it's saying. So let me read it again. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. So let me break this down a little bit. If you keep his word, in other words, you have a love for God. But listen how the NIV words the second part. Love for God is, is truly made complete in them. The, the ESV says this, love of God is perfected. The NASB says this, the love of God has truly been perfected. But I think the NIV gets it best. It says this, the love for God is truly made complete in them. Right, the word complete is uh, teleo. Right? It means to make perfect or to make complete in a moral sense. 
But here's what's interesting and why it's hard to translate is the verb is a, is a perfect passive tense, right? Meaning it, it, it's saying something like this, something that has happened to us, right? Something that's happened to us, not something we have done, something that's happened to us in the past that affects the present. Something that's happened to us in the past that affects the present. This is how one commentator, Douglas um, O'Donnell, uh, words it and, and getting the meaning across. Listen, listen to what he says. There is an infant, or emphasis on our obedience in this verse, whoever keeps his word. Right? There's an emphasis on obedience, whoever keeps his word. But don't miss the other action in this sentence. The verb is completed, is passive, which indicates that there's some actor, God, who took the initiative. In other words, because God acted and brought life to our souls, it produced a love for God. Therefore, obedience is a sign that God has acted in your life. It's evidence that God has brought a new life. It's evidence that God is, has brought a deep love for him. It's evidence that God has brought salvation into your life. But God gets all the glory. He's the one that acted initially. But the evidence that he's acted is in the desire to obey. Look at the second part of verse 5. By this we may know, there's that word again, gnosko, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, this is not perfection, but it's a desire to walk in the same way Jesus walked. And how did Jesus walk? Well, he kept the the greatest commandment perfectly. He loved God with all his heart, soul, and mind. Therefore, he obeyed all of God's commandments. But he also kept the second greatest commandment perfectly. He loved his neighbor as himself. So this leads to my second, second point this morning. The second greatest commandment. Keep your finger again on 1 John. I want you to turn back to Matthew 22. Starting in verse 34 this time. We're going to be right back in 1 John, but but I want to show you the influence this interaction's had on John by going through it. So, so Matthew 22, verse 34. Verse 34 says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. In other words, the Pharisees got together and they're trying to trap Jesus by asking a question that he wouldn't be able to answer, trying to dishonor him in front of the crowds. Verse 35 says this, and, and one of them, a lawyer, again, expert of the law, expert of the Old Testament, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Right? Now listen, there's hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament. I know when we hear something like that, we think the the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments are just a summation or a foundation to the hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament. Most people number it above 600 commandments. So to pick one commandment out of all those commandments, it's an impossible question to answer. Well, look what happens at verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, this is Jesus, said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Perfect answer. 
Perfect answer. Covers everything. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, which covers everything. If you love God with all your heart, you're going to do what he says. That's John's argument in verses 3 through 6. But then he adds something interesting, and I think it's something unexpected. Look at verse 39. And a second one, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Why add a second great commandment? Right, this is odd. And it's odd for three reasons. Let me just give you three reasons why this doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus would add this? The first reason is, is the greatest commandment covers everything. Think about that. It even covers the second greatest commandment. Why would he add the second commandment? If you love God with all your heart and mind and soul, you're going to do the second greatest commandment. So why add it? That's one reason why this is odd. Another reason, he wasn't asked for the second greatest commandment. The guy didn't come and say, give me the two greatest commandments. He said, give me the greatest commandment, and it was a perfect answer. Why add the second one? And the third reason this is odd is Deuteronomy 6 says nothing about one's neighbor. Deuteronomy 6 says nothing about one's neighbor. Let me just read it to you. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I have commanded you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Nothing about loving your neighbor in there. Right? He actually quotes from Leviticus of all places. Leviticus 19.17. This is where it, where it says this. You shall, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, not, um, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor Bless you and incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your, of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Right? Why add the second greatest commandment? Well, here's what I think. And I've said this before, and you're going to hear me say this again as we go through First John, because First John repeats itself over and over and over again. It's easy to fool yourself into thinking that you love God. I, I, I personally think, I, I, for whatever reason, I think it's because God's invisible. So, so you can make a God that's not truly the God of the Scripture, and therefore you say, well, I love God, even though it's nothing like the God of Scripture. Right? I mean, think about that. Everyone thinks they love God. The Pharisees, they believe they love God. I mean, if you question the Pharisee of their devotion and love to God, you're going to get in trouble with that Pharisee. The Sadducees, they believe they love God. The Gnostics, right, this heretical teaching that John's talking against, they believe they're Christians. They believe they're followers of God. They believe they love God. If you ask the average America, American today, they would say that they have a relationship with God and that they love God. It's easy to fool yourself into thinking you have a love for God. It's a lot harder to fool yourself into thinking you have a love for your neighbor. It's tangible. It's visible. It's seeable. I mean, Jesus knew the Pharisees thought they loved God. If he left them with just the greatest commandment, they'd be like, okay, we're good. But he adds the second greatest commandment. He says, prove to me that you love God by your love for your neighbor. 
Can you imagine what the Pharisees thought at that moment? It was so obvious they didn't have love for neighbor. They had disdain. They were self-righteous. They thought they were better than everyone else. Everyone knew that the Pharisees weren't loving towards their neighbors. The Pharisees themselves. Listen, I believe John is giving that same challenge to the Gnostics who claim that they love God. He says, prove to me you love God by your love for others. It was obvious that they weren't loving of others. Turn back with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Verse 7 says this, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, right? This is Deuteronomy 6. Love God. It's, it's, it's Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor. These are old commandments. They've, they've been around for thousands of years. And John heard it himself from Jesus. He was there, right? He witnessed the interaction. He, he heard Jesus' teaching. And Jesus was very clear. The Old Testament is summed up in two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. But look what John says, verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment. When you first read this, you, you kind of think, John, you're losing your mind. Actually, when you read First John without digging in deep, there's a lot of times you're like, John, you're losing your mind. I mean, verse 7 says, But beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. And the verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment. Well, is it an old commandment or a new commandment? Yes, I heard that. What do you mean? Well, in one sense, it's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. We just went over that. Deuteronomy 6, that's an old commandment. Love God. Leviticus 19, that's an old commandment. Love your neighbor. It's an old commandment. It's from the old commandments. It's from the Old Testament, right? It's from, from the beginning, but in another sense, it's a new commandment. Because for the New Testament believer, we have the example of Christ. A sacrificial love that makes the old commandment refreshed in a new way. I mean, Jesus even says in the Gospel of John 13, uh, verse 34, says this, A new commandment I give to you. Or this is a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. That's an old commandment. How's it a new commandment? Well, he says this, just as I have loved you. We have a visible example of God's love, making it new. Can you imagine? I just think of it, I like to do this, just put myself in this situation. Can you just think of Old Testament saints, okay? And I know the Old Testament points to Jesus' sacrifice, but, but it, was, it, was, it was kind of veiled in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament saints didn't really get that, that, that God the Son would come down and be sacrificed on, on, on the cross. They got enough to be saved, but they didn't get the whole thing like we have. Could you imagine the thought, right, that God himself, an Old Testament saint, and you come and tell an Old Testament saint before anything's happened, that God himself would come down in human form and die on a cross for you. Can you imagine or even this, let's take it a step further, that the lamb that's being slaughtered every single year, right? I mean, in a horrific way, slitting the throat, taking the blood out in front of everyone, that the lamb being slaughtered every single year is pointing to, to God the Son being slaughtered for our sins. 
Jesus' sacrifice brings a newness to the old commandment, love your neighbor. It was a sacrificial love. A willingness to, to sacrifice, right? To sacrifice your preferences. To sacrifice your goods. To sacrifice your well-being. To sacrifice your life for your neighbor. I mean, Jesus sets the bar pretty high, right? It kills me to hear churches that split over the color of the carpet. Or the style of worship. Really? Our calling is so much higher than that. Jesus is our example. In the church, with each other, we are called to have patience with each other. We are called to put others first by not making our preference more important, but yours. Say, not my preference, your preference. Listen, I'm just talking about preferences. Jesus laid down his life. We won't even lay down our preferences for each other. Jesus, the God of the universe, was slaughtered out of love for God and of love for us. It's amazing. There's a newness to this command, love your neighbor, because Jesus is our example. Are you following that example? Are you following that example? In your relationships here at the church, are you following that example? Look at verse 8. At the same time, it's, it's a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Right? Therefore, look at verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light, in other words, has fellowship with God, right? God is light, has fellowship with God, and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Right? In other words, if you say, I love God, like the Pharisees, like the Sadducees, like the Gnostics, but don't obey the second greatest commandment, you're kidding yourself. You're lying to yourself. You're deceiving yourself. You're in the darkness. You're blind. You're not in the light. You don't have fellowship with God. You don't truly love God. Listen to what it says in, in John in verse 9, right, chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. I want to take a closer look at this verse. I, I want us to get this, right? First of all, who's your brother? We've got to be clear because it's not everyone here. Your brother are those that are saved, those that are within the church. The church. That's why to say something like, I love the church, but I, or I love Christ, but I hate the church, or I love Christ, but I want nothing to do with the church, is nonsense. That makes absolutely no sense. Listen, a churchless Christianity is nonsense. It doesn't make sense. It, it would be like, let me put it in a way, it'd be like if you're questioning that, saying something like this, Nathan, I love you. Man, I love you. I, I, would, I would do anything for you. I, I want to fellowship with you. I want to be with you. But you know, Sarah, Autumn and August? Yeah, could you leave them behind me? Because I really can't stand them. Could you imagine what I would do? Listen, the church is the bride of Christ. 
Christ loved the church so much that he, he died for her. The church, listen, is the adopted sons and daughters of the Father. The Father loved the church so much that he sent his son to die for her. Doesn't make any sense. Look at verse 9. And you know what? That's a popular saying. It's popular to say something like that. Look at verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light, right, have fellowship with God and hates his brother is still in the darkness. I want to be clear. John is not saying we are saved by works. In other words, he's not saying you're saved by loving your brothers. Only faith will save you in Christ and what he has done for you. But the love of the brethren, the love of each other, is evidence of salvation because it's evidence of love of God. It's evidence of love for God. Right? I said this, and I'm going to say it again. When you love the church, you love what God loves. When you love the church, you are loving what God loves. One commentator put it this way, and I loved how he did this. He says this, Are you envious? Arrogant, rude, irritable, resentful, and insistent on your own way, your own preferences. It's the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13. That's what he's getting at, the love chapter. Do you rejoice when others stumble? Are you living in the light? Does the love of Christ compel you to love others, especially those within the church? Are you kind and patient with everyone? Have you forgiven those who have trespassed against you? Do you serve the least of these, my brothers, as you would Jesus himself? Do you bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things? If so, you can be assured that you know God and that you shall have eternal life with him. You have passed from death to life, from darkness to light, from the devil's domain to Christ's domain. That's the love chapter that he's going through. First Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. We all know this, right? Because we hear it at weddings. You know what's interesting about the love chapter? The context that, of that passage is our love for each other in the church, not a romantic couple. It's, it's our love for each other in the church. I mean, it's appropriate weddings, especially if both members go to the same church, because you're supposed to love them because they're part of your church. But it's in the context of the church. I mean, I, you laugh about that. It's true. All the one another's that we're supposed to do for each other, we're supposed to do that with our wives and husbands. They're part of the church. You're supposed to love them as if they're a part of the church. The love chapter's context is our relationship with each other. It's our relationships within the church. Patient, kind, gentle. Putting others' preferences before us. Believing all things. Hoping all things. It's practical. Look what 1 John 2.10 says. Man, we might not make the Super Bowl. I'm just, just, just like at the time. Verse 10, I'll, we'll get through this. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the, the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. One commentator said this, and I, and I love this, to live without loving one's brother is, for this author, in this, in this verse right here, is to live in total meaninglessness, to live in total darkness, to live in total blindness. 
And I know what you're thinking right now, because I've been thinking the same thing as I've been studying this all week, as I got to this point. Listen, if evidence of salvation is loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and loving others as yourself, then I am doomed. I, I don't do that. Well, look at verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Right? John quickly, after giving these challenging, challenging things to examine ourselves, goes right to God's grace. Quickly goes back to God's grace. This is not perfection. Remember chapter 1. John is saying that that if you are truly saved, you will have a love for God, a, a desire to keep his commandments. If you are truly saved, you will have a love for the brethren, a desire to love the brethren, not perfection. Which leads me to my last point, the application of these commandments. Look at verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Most of your scriptures probably have kind of that spaced a little different than the rest of 1 John. It's because it's poetic language. In other words, John's kind of writing a poem here. Verse 2, the beginning of it, he's challenging the confessing Christian. He's challenging us to examine our lives to see if we're truly saved. Do you truly love God? Do you truly love the brothers? But here John switches quickly to encouragement. He knew that some in the church, and there might be some of you right now, are struggling with assurance. And he encourages them with a poem. Look at verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. He's reminding them, hey, you're saved by grace, not works. If you're questioning your salvation this morning, right, if, you, if you're like, I'm not sure if I'm in right standing with the Lord, or you're thinking, I, there's this sin that I am struggling to get away from, listen, repent from that sin and put your faith in Christ. Repent from that sin, put your faith in Christ, and your sins will be forgiven. Repent, meaning turn away from that sin, run away from it, run into Christ, confess that sin. Look at that sin the way Jesus and God looks at that sin and turn to him and ask him for forgiveness, knowing that Jesus went to the cross to die for those sins. And your sins will be forgiven. Look at verse 12 again. I am writing to you, little children. Who's John writing to? Well, we've seen this phrase a lot, right? We've seen it already, and we're going to see it a lot in First John. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, we just went over this last week. My little children, I'm writing, to, I'm writing these sayings to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Who's the little children referred to there? The church as a whole. Look at verse 12 again. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. This is the most basic level of Christianity. Everyone that is Christian right, truly saved, their sins have to be forgiven for his namesake. This is everyone that's saved within the church. Every single person that's truly a Christian, their sins are forgiven. Now look at the last part of verse 13. I write to you children, there's that word again, children, because you know the Father. If your sins are forgiven, right, if you're truly saved, 
Then you have fellowship with the Father. Remember, John equated those things, salvation with fellowship with God. You know the Father. You have fellowship with God. It's a basic level of Christianity. Everyone in the church that is saved, their sins are forgiven, and they know the Father. But look at the second part of verse 13. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Look at the last part of verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Right? The most basic level of Christianity is everyone. Right? Children. The more mature believer are young men, and that's a smaller subgroup. Right? They're a part of everyone, the children, but they're a smaller group, those that are maturing in their walk with the Lord. Young men, it says, have overcome the evil one. How? Well, look at verse 14. They are strong. Well, how are they strong? Because the word of God abides in them. In other words, the maturing believer grows in his understanding of Scripture. Right? He grows in his understanding of Scripture, and he grows in spiritual maturity through that. Right? He's transformed by the renewing of his mind, in other words. That's Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, grow, change by the renewing of your mind. He's able to take every false thought captive or starting to, to make a habit of taking lies and false thoughts captive and replacing them with truth. That's 2 Corinthians 10.5. We, we destroy arguments and lefty, lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Young men are marked, right? Those that are maturing in their faith are marked by an understanding of Scripture. Which leads to the last stage of maturity, verse 13. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Last stage of maturity as a Christian. It's the smallest group of those within the church, the most mature group. Those who know him, in other words, have a deep relationship with him. Right? Who is from the beginning? Well, who's that? Who's from the beginning? Well, First John 1.1, 1, 1, remember that which was from the beginning? Or the gospel of John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. It's Jesus. Jesus, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Right? We've seen this. I know I've seen. I see it in our church. Older saints or, or saints that have just been walking with the Lord for a long time that have a deep love and trust and joy in their relationship with Jesus. And they're just talking about Jesus all the time. Almost excited to die because they can be with Jesus, right? We see this in Paul. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, I spread his name out there, but this relationship I have with him, but to die is to be with him. Little children is everyone. Young men are, these, are these, this group that's growing. Fathers are, are the mature Christians that have a deep love for Jesus. So how is this an application of the two greatest commandments? All right, that's what I titled this point, application of the two greatest commandments. Listen, where there is love for God and others in the church, there will be diversity. You hear me? Where there is love for God and others in the church, there will be diversity. And I know what you're thinking. Listen, I'm not talking about diversity in the political sense. Just get that out of your mind. Talking about true diversity, not a political word. Look at verses 12 through 14. There's diversity in this poem. 
Little children, young men, fathers. Little children, young men, fathers. There's diversity in people's walk with the Lord. When the church is unified in a love for God and love for others, they will cultivate diversity. Because the church won't let differences like race, culture, maturity in the Lord, age, stages of life, wealth, upbringing, giftings, it won't let those things separate us. Because the love of God will transcend all of our differences. That's why Revelation 5 that I preached on last week, I just mentioned last week, we, we ended in worship just reading it last week. It's so beautiful. Let me just read it again. 5.9, it says, and, and they sang a new song, saying, this is, this is a song that, that people are going to be singing to God forever and worshiping Jesus. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, a diversity of people. And you think about that. People that used to hate each other. North Koreans and South Koreans, side by side, worshiping God because their love for God transcends their differences. Diversity in church only happens when we are unified in our worship for God, our our love for God. And we are willing to lay down our preferences, and I want to be clear, our preferences, not convictions. We're willing to lay down our preferences, not conviction. In other words, I'm not unified with a Mormon. I'm not laying down my convictions, our preferences. When we are willing to lay down our, our preferences for others. Listen, a sign of a healthy church is diversity. If you walk in a church and you see one age group or one type of person, be cautious doesn't necessarily mean it's an unhealthy church, but that's a sign. And it might be your age group and your type of person, too. I might, might see a church that's a bunch of 30-year-olds that are hipsters. Not that I'm a hipster. <laughs> but I might like that. If I see that, it's a sign that's probably not a healthy church. If I walk into a church and I see a diversity of ages, diversity of backgrounds, diversity of types of people, it's a good sign that's a healthy church. A diversity of ages means that there's a love of God that transcends our differences and people are laying down their preferences for each other, right? Music styles, color of carpet, nursery, what that looks like, room temperature, music volume. Listen, I want to end with this and, and this idea. We are trying to, to make fellowship, loving each other, a priority in this season and really through small groups. We'd love to see you a part of a small group, and and we're trying to make that a priority at our church. Listen, I would love to see diversity in our small groups. Diversity in our small groups, right? Diversity of our our walk with the Lord. Small groups that, that have different levels of maturity, Christian maturity, spiritual maturity. More mature saints discipling less mature saints. I love that our women's Bible study is is trying to do that. It'd be a lot easier just to get everyone separated in their age groups. We're trying to mix them so that the more mature saints could disciple the less mature saints. Diversity in culture, right? We don't have a ton of, a ton of different cultures, right, or races in Tashby. I get that, so it's only going to go so far. But I am thankful, and I'll be honest about this, of our growing Hispanic influence. There's a whole Hispanic community that I would love to see us reach out to. 
A diversity in age, right? We've talked about this already. Love to see our small groups more intergenerational. And I want to break up your small groups. So if you have a small group that's not intergenerational, you can keep it going. I'm not, we're not trying to break up our small groups. But new ones that start, or maybe you could leave that small group and, and be in a small group that has younger people. I can see diversity in relationship status. I'm not talking about sexuality. Again, not the political sense of homosexuality and none of that. I'm talking about single moms, single dads, widows, or singles that are not married yet, joining small groups with married people so we can pour into each other's lives. I would love to see our fellowship, our love for God transcend our differences because our love love for God should transcend everything, right? Even our differences. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I know I just preached what John has, has laid down for us, Lord, that, that, that there would be this diversity in, in different backgrounds and all coming together in a, in a common love and fellowship. It's impossible. It's impossible without you, without you acting, Lord. Listen, God, we know sin brought, brought us separate, Lord. We see in the Tower of Babel how sin separated us. But your gospel, what you did on the cross, should unite us, Lord. I pray that's true for our church. I pray that people from outside our church walk in and go, how do these people get along together? They're so different, yet they have a common love for God that, that is obvious. Lord, I pray that's true for our, our church. I pray that's true for our small groups, that we strive for that, Lord. Help us to lay down our preferences, Lord, not our convictions, our preferences for each other. Always putting each other first, Lord. A church that's always saying, no, not my way, your way. Pray that we argue about that. God, make that be true for Country Oaks. Put that on our hearts, Lord. Help us be united in that. I pray the Spirit just moves through us all to love each other the way that you intended us to love each other. In your son's name, amen.